The Vision app is the best place to find a growing range of on-demand audio for the whole family. Your kids or grandkids can listen to the popular radio drama Adventures in Odyssey and two-minute Bible stories called Quick Sticks whenever it suits you. Whether you're in the car for a few minutes or for a longer trip, these two programs will keep the kids entertained. New episodes are added every weekday in the free Vision Christian Media app. If you don't already have the app on your smartphone or tablet, download it now from vision.org.au slash app. Vision.org.au slash app. Vision. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. And there may still be some elements of that in our conversation ahead over this coming hour. But this morning, we're going to change direction after the latest developments on the Victorian conversion therapy laws. Last night, the Victorian Parliament passed new laws which affects all Australians. The Andrews Labor government successfully passed its so-called Change and Suppression Conversion Practices Prohibition Bill. The bill was passed 27 votes to 9. Now, the bill purports to ban so-called gay conversion therapy, both in secular and in faith-based settings. It'll have ramifications for every Australian, especially parents. I might say parents, uh, either Christian or non-Christian. Also, medical and counselling professionals, and importantly, where our discussion will be today around Christian prayer and pastoral care. And talking through some of these issues, uh, always a pleasure to welcome to 2020 Damien Wilde, who leads the Australian Family Coalition. Damien's been a defender of the family. He promotes a society grounded on conservative Christian values and aspires to safeguard the basic freedoms that are under threat today. He, as you may remember, was at the forefront of the marriage debate back in 2017 and has been an outstanding advocate for family and Christian values. Damien Wilder, special welcome back to 2020. G'day, Neil. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Damien. Uh, Well, this day has come. Uh, The Victorian Upper House voted last night uh, to change the laws. And, uh, of course, uh, the church is right there in the middle of all of this controversy right now. I wonder if you've got any impression as we sort of perhaps uh, recount some of the things that have happened uh, last night and in the lead up to what's happened. Well, I've got to tell you, Neil, I'm, I'm sitting here now with my third coffee of the morning already. Um, firstly, it was a late night watching it all and then trying to cobble together some meaningful thoughts, but also just this morning to try and, I guess, much like yourself and your listeners, digest what this actually means for us. It was uh, an astonishing debate to listen to at times. Um, I heard a lot more of the, uh, the lower house debate when it was rammed through before Christmas, What we've seen, of course, should not be a surprise in the sense that we can see this sort of legislation coming through. It's not, it hasn't just arrived as a surprise, but it makes it nonetheless shocking. And when we realise with this particular uh, new piece of legislation, the huge reach it will have, uh, it reaches over churches, individual treatment or counselling that people may choose to pursue. It will affect uh, people in the psychological uh, and psychiatric fields. And I think most fundamentally, it reaches deep within the family home, potentially affecting conversations between parents and their children. Um, I'm really struggling to come to grips with this because I have seen, uh, you know, in my 
17 odd years in this, this field as a pro-family advocate, all sorts of legislation. But this certainly ranks among the worst of them. It really does. Uh, let's just qualify our conversation today because uh, an interesting thing, the law has passed the Upper House in Victoria. Uh, it will come into law, but uh, in my understanding, and as reports go, uh, the law now goes to the Victorian Governor for royal assent, and it won't come into effect for another 12 months. So uh, for those listeners who might be concerned about us even talking about this topic today, uh, there is a sense in which uh, there is a 12-month period before this comes into law. How do you think that will affect uh, people talking about these sorts of things in church life over this coming time, Damien? I think, firstly, Neil, you're right to point out that there should not be any immediate concern uh, in the sense that people should not feel like they can't have these conversations at church or at home. There will be some time, perhaps, to try and prepare as best people can. Um, I'm actually struggling to answer this one, Neil, because the, the very ramifications we're seeking to talk about here were raised in the Parliament just last night. It was pointed out that even those who were pro-LGBT, were fearful of being able to engage in their practices because even their own uh, counselling services may fall under the scope of this legislation. The the fact that they may actually be uh, feel compelled to leave their profession was of no interest to those who supported this legislation. I mention this now because your question, of course, is what to to do over these next 12 months? Uh, What does the landscape look like for these and for other people? So I think that these next few months will be a very challenging time as churches, uh, parents, different communities grapple with uh, how to, to live with this new environment. You raise something I think is so important there uh, that even the counsellors who are employed in the clinics uh, or those areas where it is the medical profession involved, even on the uh, pro-LGBT side, uh, anyone who feels offended in any sort of counselling session is going to be weaponized now to have their complaint uh, registered and heard. And so even people on the side of LGBT people are going to have to watch their P's and Q's in everything that they say because anything that is now offensive to someone who is in the LGBT community or uh, in some sort of transition process uh, is going to be weaponized uh, if they feel offended. Is that a fair enough way to, to assess what you're saying? Absolutely, uh, particularly when you look at some of the finer points of the, the bill, which include, for example, that a complaint can be made anonymously. So the, the potential for this weaponization you talk about is certainly there. Um, I think this was realised by huge cross-sections of the community when you've got uh, pro-LGBT councillors on the same page, more or less, perhaps for different reasons, but on the same page, uh, all the same, with uh, Christian communities, with parents, with the Muslim community and many others who spoke out. This should be an alarm bell to any parliamentarian who was still grappling with which way to vote last night. But the sheer fact that three quarters of them thought that the bill should be passed regardless and completely unamended is just shocking. Um, I keep coming back to that word, but that's how it is. Let's talk about those parliamentarians for just a moment here because one of the things that goes out the door as freedoms go out the door is this idea of political 
communication, the freedom that parliamentarians might have, uh, that in our legislatures uh, they've got an opportunity to be able to present a case uh, for both sides of any argument. It doesn't matter whether it's uh, on this particular issue or others. Uh, When they feel as though they will not be able to present any sort of alternative to uh, the sorts of things that have been legislated overnight, that creates a major problem for freedoms everywhere, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if they're not willing to stand up at a time like this, when are they willing to stand? And I think there have been some very good questions uh, raised about that. Whatever led them to the position they adopted last night, uh, some of them genuinely believe that this is a good law, or whether some of them were simply um, beaten into submission by the very emotive uh, arguments, largely irrational and sometimes untrue arguments that were put in support of this bill. I mean, it's been presented to the community at large, I think, those who've actually followed it at all, as some sort of attempt to stop medieval barbaric practices. It conjures up images of harm. Uh, Phrases like electroshock therapy have been used when... What has been legislated over are conversations, consensual conversations at church, conversations between parents and their children, and MPs knew this, and they legislated regardless. So to be honest, I'm not particularly confident about what this means for our freedoms in the short term. There's still a separate conversation that needs to be had federally, and I've been trying to explain to people overnight that that is a a separate matter uh, and one that we still need to look to. It may be... uh, an issue of increased importance uh, after this, I dare say. When you use those words, barbaric practices and uh, electroshock therapy and all sorts of uh, things that perhaps have been used uh, back in medieval times, uh, those things are already outlawed. Uh, Those things would not be allowed. Uh, So this idea of aligning Christian prayer to barbaric practices is where really uh, it comes into contention here as to why we need to be talking about it because uh, clearly Christian prayer isn't uh, in our mind a barbaric practice but uh, that certainly is in the mind of some people who've been against the church and why the church is a target here this idea that prayer is a barbaric practice any thoughts around that Damien? Well that's that's certainly uh, been a topic of debate um, on this bill and including uh, in some of the explanatory documents around it. What we see here is um, basically a, a front for an attack on Christianity. Um, we we saw during the Israel Folau debate whether people agreed with what he said or how he said it. That, that's irrelevant in terms of what I'm trying to get at. At the end of the day, there is a, a perception that Christian teachings are of harm to uh, people of diverse sexuality, and therefore, basically, they must be declared illegal. We are basically at that point where the Bible, Christian teaching, will fall foul of the law. That was pretty much spelt out in some of the documents and commentary uh, that surrounded this bill that's passed the Victorian Parliament overnight. Um, so to answer your question, Neil, I, I think it, <laughs> it's really going to uh, sort the wheat from the chaff in terms of believers uh, who are willing to to say no to government that uh, you know we will stand by our beliefs. It doesn't doesn't matter if you criminalise it. Uh, I'm I'm not necessarily encouraging civil disobedience, by the way, Neil, right on the air right now. But but I am saying nonetheless that uh, it's coming to the point where Christians are going to be faced with a dilemma when their government says your beliefs are now illegal. 
And, you know, our book, The Bible, uh, almost the idea of it being one step away from being an illegal book, uh, that has to be a concern because the words in the Bible won't and can't change. And uh, it's the words in the Bible that are at loggerheads with what this new legislation suggests. Mm, precisely, precisely. Um, so I think that, um, that that moment, that tipping point is certainly upon us. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. It is the Friday edition of 2020. Wonderful to have you along with us. And a few changes happening even as our conversation continues today. Our special guest is Damien Wilde, who leads the Australian Family Coalition. And we're talking about the legislation that was passed in the Victorian Upper House last night. Uh, there was a question that we were asking earlier, and uh, there are some powers that be that decided that perhaps we better not word things uh, in such a way as that might cause some level of controversy around this particular topic. So, uh, Damien, we're going to ask a a separate sort of a question and listeners might like to respond to it. As Christians, how do we live with the biblical mandate to honour and pray for our leaders when we disagree with their decisions? So you uh, will find, I think, that question on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash vision radio around a very touchy, very, uh, very a controversial issue that we're talking through today with the legislation that has passed in the Victorian Upper House overnight. Uh, interestingly here, Damien, the bill goes further than the one that was introduced in Queensland, which had a focus on medical and counselling professionals. Uh, then the ACT put their own th- their laws through. Uh, that included parents, and that was pretty tough going. But now in Victoria, it includes churches, and as you say, something of an attack on Christianity. And, and so I think uh, there's going to be a lot of people a little bit concerned about how they respond to that. I wonder if you've got any thoughts about uh, courageously being able to discuss these things in your church group so that you are aware of how you protect yourself and your church community. Any thoughts here, Damien? Well, it's interesting, Neil, firstly, that you talk about the sort of domino effect of these bills and and how in a way that as they come around the country, they're getting worse. Um, I've been fascinated to read some of the responses online overnight as to how people feel they can respond to this. Uh, a number of people were saying, well, probably high time we load up the car and leave Victoria. Um, while, while it may be easy to sympathise with that, the mere fact that these sorts of laws do follow that domino pattern around the country, as we've seen with other laws like abortion, euthanasia, basically, I, unless you've got some other good reason to move, I always feel as a Christian that the best thing is to try and make the most of where you are. And I'm sure that God has put everyone in their place for a reason. Um In terms of how practically to deal with this, it's going to be challenging. The proponents of the bill have indicated, um, whether you believe them or not, that um, the the legislation targets those sort of one-on-one conversations and is not designed to capture a broader group settings. So, for example, um, a sermon or the like. But it's it's really unsure yet as to whether that is the case. Uh, I, I suspect it may well come down to uh, court rulings at the end of the day, even when complaints are lodged about some of these sorts of um, events, because it goes without saying there will be people who will try to, uh, I think, exploit this new law um, in its weaponised form, as you, you said before, and will try to um, play gotcha moments. 
So um, I think, first and foremost, those who in, are in a position to have these sorts of conversations and wish to do so over the coming months to do so, um, while um, further consideration is given to, to how these services can be provided in future to those who, who seek them, and particularly how parents can better be protected from uh, falling foul of these laws. I mean, at the moment, if the law is left as it is, as it stands, it doesn't just criminalise those who participate in any of these sorts of discussions in Victoria. It actually has a national approach, or dare I say, even an international approach, because if a person is found to be engaging in what, what is deemed a suppression practice from outside Victoria, so on the phone or by mail, email, uh, even with a family member, they will fall foul of these laws as well. So there really is a lot of consideration uh, that needs to be given to how to to engage with this brave new world. Interesting as you raise that sort of point, uh, how the federal government may well now respond because it's very interesting, isn't it, how, as you say, a law that's made in Victoria is really a law that's made for every Australian. So you've got Dan Andrews in Victoria now making federal law. Uh, and it will be interesting to see how our federal politicians uh, might respond to that. Any thoughts on on whether you think that there might be some uh, interaction between uh, the federal government and the Victorian government around this? An interesting question, Neil. Um, obviously, the long-promised federal protections um, arising from the 2017 marriage uh, vote have been very long in coming. We still haven't seen uh, any meaningful action. We've seen some draft legislation which, frankly, fell rather short of what's needed. But the government has been dragging its feet, and with the federal election approaching, I'm a little bit concerned that the clock is ticking. To go to your question about what the interplay between the federal scene and Victoria may look like, that's an interesting one. Because firstly, there's the question of whether any federal legislation would actually have the ability to override these laws and whether the federal government would seek to do though, do so. I would argue that uh, they probably do have those powers, but whether they seek to use them or not, that's my second point. Whether our parliamentarians have the resolve, the backbone basically to do so. Uh, I think people were rightly disappointed uh, in the conservative side of politics in Victoria, that for the most part they did not stand up for their constituency. They they did not uh, beyond you know trying to get a few amendments up last, but then caving in didn't really do much to protect the rights of parents and of uh, and of faith communities. So I don't say that uh, to cause people to despair, but rather to realise that the stakes are very high. And as we swing back now to a focus, I think on the the federal situation and trying to get some meaningful protections for our freedoms, that we realise what's at stake here and we we basically should demand of our, our parliamentarians as we approach a federal election and we see what the, the different parties have to offer us, what they are willing to do for us on this front. No doubt there's plenty more to talk about along those lines as we approach another federal election. Another thing that maybe some will say gives a little bit of comfort that I'll run by you, Damien, the idea that the Victorian Attorney-General, Jacqueline Symes, is reported as saying the bill does not outlaw prayer. Uh, Also, it does not prevent health professionals from doing their job. It does not stop parents from talking to their kids about their views about sexuality or gender. 
I mean, are those comforting words that disguise something a little deeper here? I mean, when the Victorian Attorney General is trying to, in some sense here, say, oh, it's not really going to be as bad as you might think, how should we look at those sorts of words? <laughs> with with deep suspicion at the very least. Um, I watched most of the debate last night, particularly uh, when it went into committee stage, which is when people have a, an opportunity to move amendments. And uh, the Attorney General, along with her colleagues, voted against every single one. Many of those amendments would have uh, at least ameliorated the bill, they would have lessened its impact, and they would have uh, codified some of the sort of things that you hinted at just before, Neil. Um, it would have, for example, uh, exempted consensual practices. It would have exempted family discussions. But uh, the Attorney General and her colleagues uh, got into a, a big discussion about what was meant by family. And it was just, it, was, it was, would have been comical if it wasn't about something so serious. So for her and others to suggest that we needn't be concerned, I'm deeply concerned, and um, I'd trust my own eyes and ears more than what uh, some of these parliamentarians have to say. Uh, the LGBT community here, uh, the idea of uh, their goal to stamp out uh, what we call heteronormativity, the idea of uh, you know male-female, uh, the idea of uh, families even having uh, this opportunity to raise their children the way they want because uh, the thought here, Damien, is uh, the idea that there is not just a tolerance that is being expected but also a celebration of this uh, a view of sexuality. And it's something here that, uh, you know, you can be supportive of affirming a person's gender, identity and sexual orientation, but anything other than that is outlawed. Uh, it's really a blanket approach, isn't it? It is. It's People have described similar bills elsewhere uh, in Australia and around the world as stay gay bills. Um, it, it sort of flies in the face of uh, modern progressive thinking that sexuality is quite fluid. How can it be fluid if we're simply meant to affirm uh, a diverse form of sexuality and that's it? There is, there is no change from that. Likewise, uh, the bill will permit, of course, uh, any uh, affirming of a new gender identity other than a person's biological sex. So, uh, you know, if, if someone's son says suddenly that they're a daughter, uh, then, of course, you know, counselling will be permitted to affirm that new identity but uh, trying to, um, you know, address the, the root cause, the gender dysphoria that that boy experiences would be completely prohibited from, um, you know, a, a parent trying to suggest uh, and impart to that boy there is potentially a criminal act occurring there under this new law. So it's very much a one-way street and, as you say, goes far beyond mere toleration uh, and seems to be, um, I hate to use that word affirming, but... Um, really um, coming down on the side of these progressive ideas about sexuality and gender. In a little bit of speculation as to what might be coming, Damien, uh, I'm just reminded of a conversation even many years ago now about the Canadian situation. And uh, I was really quite disturbed to hear that in Canada, teachers have become the police around issues of sexuality because attuned to what children might be saying is happening in their home and the idea of uh, a complaint then coming from a teacher about a parent of a child who's in their class and 
parents then needing to go through re-education programs and all sorts of things. I wonder if it's a, a speculation or whether you think that might actually be the way things will move here in Australia or particularly in Victoria. Well, given that it doesn't have to be a party to a complaint, an allegation that lodges um, such a, a claim with the, the Equal Opportunity Commission, that's entirely possible. Um, I could envisage a situation where it could be a school teacher or someone else. Um, and the Canadian environment you point to is just one of several that we should be alarmed about. Some of these countries have gone down the so-called progressive path in a very big way the last few years. Um, in addition to Canada, I would point listeners to Scotland as well, where a few years ago um, the Scottish government there came up with what they called the Named Persons Scheme. Now, you couldn't come up with it more Orwellian title if you tried. It was all, it's almost like they, they crafted this thing to look sinister. And part of these sort of Scottish schemes would have seen uh, a named person, so usually a school principal or the like, who was not to be a child's uh, relative, who had some level of, of care uh, and, I guess, uh, sort of moral guardianship over the child. And one of the many things that they were to be asked to do would be to, I think, once or twice a year, have students in their classroom write an essay about things at home and, and how their life was going. And these would all be gathered up for perusal at the end of it. Now, that should ring alarm bells in the mind of, of any parents and indeed people more, more generally about the sort of coercive power of the state in, into the family home, particularly on issues like sexuality and gender. So... Is that possible? Uh, could we see that here? I think it's uh, too far away at all, potentially under this new law. While it may not uh, sort of prescribe those sorts of acts, the legislation does provide for uh, fines, for jail time and for re-education. Um, it provides for a publicly accessible register of people whom complaints have been uh, upheld against. It's really alarming and we can look to these other countries to sort of see where this path leads. Damien, before we move any further here, uh, back to 2017, the marriage debate. Uh, you were there and in the media prominently uh, supporting the no case. And uh, there were all of these promises that uh, all that the LGBT community wanted was equality when it came to gay marriage. And uh, from since that point, things have snowballed even to this point today. I wonder if you've got any reflection on... <laughs> four years of, uh, of change to a point where now Christian prayer is criminalised. Neil, I was thinking just last night of a, a book I read many years ago, uh, which was very formative for me when I got into this field, by uh, an Indian immigrant to America called Dinesh D'Souza. Some of your listeners may know him. He's still quite active on social media. He worked for Ronald Reagan. And he said, this is quite prophetic, he said that we will see different phases in these sorts of changes in society. The first is tolerance, followed by equality, and then lastly, affirmation. And that's the stage we're at now. Uh, many of us tried to warn about this during the marriage debate. Uh, I was also thinking last night as I watched the Victorian debate that I penned a forward to an e-book during the marriage campaign called Consequences, which warned about many of these things. And of course, we were ridiculed and howled down as doomsayers and alarmists and, and bigots. But now when we're seeing it come to light... I can't help but wonder whether you know, many of the 61% of Australians who voted yes in the marriage postal survey might have buyer's remorse because it's, uh, 
It's one thing to, to try and provide what is largely an abstract intellectual argument that flies in the face of someone's emotional demand to marry their partner. But when you actually see these new laws reaching into churches, reaching into clinical practice and reaching into the family home, it suddenly becomes very real for people. We were going to talk big tech and freedoms today, and there is an overlap here because the interesting thing that from this point forward, even though this law won't come into effect for another 12 months, it needs the royal assent from the Victorian governor to become into law. But no doubt those proponents on the LGBT side of issues will enjoy the opportunity to use social media now to really stress the point that if you say anything in this space, uh, there will be uh, ramifications. There's an intimidation factor here. I wonder if you've got any thoughts here on what we were originally going to talk about is the power of big tech and the way that uh, freedom of speech can be uh, stamped out. Any thoughts here on that crossover? Yeah, big tech and social media, it's a fascinating issue and I've seen an array of opinions, particularly about what's happened in America over the last few weeks, you know, world leaders like Donald Trump and, and key conservative figures being deplatformed um, about other services being shut down. I've seen a, a range of very interesting opinions and I think it's one of those things where it's best to let the dust settle almost before weighing in. I, I think that... Um, the very first point I would make to, to your listeners is not to abandon these fields. I think there's been a bit of a rush, perhaps uh, discussed on the part of some, uh, at what they, they perceive to be you know, the faults of these big companies and they're basically checking out. They're, they're cancelling their Facebook profiles, getting off of Twitter. If people are doing that for, for some good reason, by all means, you know, to spend more time with their family and whatnot, that's certainly to be encouraged. But if it's simply... Uh, an act of protest, I would I would suggest think again. Um, AFC is certainly not leaving Facebook because much like TV when it was invented or the internet when it came along 30 odd years ago, these are tools which can be used you know, for good or for real. Um, we certainly as an organisation would not have anywhere near the reach and impact uh, that we've been able to have if it wasn't for these sorts of tools. And I think that as these sorts of laws uh, become more prevalent, like the one we're seeing in Victoria now, that the online reach will be a key way by which people can uh, perhaps still communicate their ideas more broadly. Um, it's interesting to see how, in fact, certain um, countries are starting to perceive the need to um, free up their social media uh, content. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with what's happening in Poland at the moment. But in response to these sorts of um, events we're seeing around the world, uh, censoring of, of conservative voices, the Polish government is um, drafting legislation which will make it uh, a crime for big tech and social media to delete or censor um, any statement which would normally be permissible to make under Polish law. Um, there are good parliamentarians, federal parliamentarians now in Australia who are looking at whether this sort of law might be suitable for Australia. That's something I'm in two minds about myself. I think it certainly has merit. The question is, what is permissible under Australian law? If suddenly we see laws the like of which were passed in Victoria last night, does that suddenly criminalise what we would might we might otherwise say on, on Facebook or Twitter? So I can see an argument for and against, but I certainly think that uh, parliamentarians like Senator Alex Antic, who is calling for a, a Senate inquiry into this, uh, George Christensen, who I know who has been very active on this as well, 
I think they're quite right to look into this uh, because it's something that affects so many people. When you say uh, there is a certain sense in which Facebook and Twitter can be used for good or ill, uh, the idea of intimidation that happens there and the encouragement to Christian believers not to bow to intimidation but to, I guess, uh, sensitively but assertively uh, assert uh, some level of truth into social media because it's an important platform uh, to have that presence on. And it leads to the big question, too, that goes on from that about Christians and our involvements in public life. Uh, This idea that Christians often have some level of revulsion uh, with politics because it's a grubby game and you can get hurt easily in a political debate. Uh, But what are your thoughts here for Christians when it comes to the engagement, not just with social media, but also in the political realm and even uh, moving into uh, local, state, federal politics? Well, it's an area, uh, Neil, in which I can speak not just in the abstract, but perhaps um, a little bit more concretely. Um, I've heard many people over the years encouraging involvement by Christians in politics, many of whom have never actually set foot themselves. Perhaps they don't see it as their role. They need to remain apolitical. I, I guess I respect that. But I do think there is there has never been a greater need for people to do that. I certainly um, have put my time and energy where my mouth is, Um, I I won't uh, name names, but if people care to Google my name, they will see where I've um, endeavoured before uh, and still do. I think it's never been more necessary uh, for Christians to step up, to get involved. Otherwise, it's no small wonder they find themselves largely in the minority. Certainly, their voice seems to be diminished greatly at the moment, which is surprising because even in this modern, very secular-looking Australia, where um, you know Christians have been greatly diminished on our census and in other ways, we still have uh, you know a huge um, pool to draw on of good people spread across our country who are not starting from scratch, by the way, either. They are uh, able to connect with and look up to uh, many good Christians in our parliaments around the country. Um, just looking last night at Victoria, for example. Yes, those who voted against the bill were a minority, but among them, there were some really, really solid MPs. Um, Just one person I'll name. Um, There's always a risk when you name one person, you don't name others, but I I know this MP personally, and I can attest to the fact that he's always there when it matters, and that's Bernie Finn, MLC. So uh, federally, people will see the same, and we need to support these people. Uh, We need to get in there. We need to promote other good people to join them because that's the way that we can help turn this country around. Uh, I know I often um, seem to talk doom and gloom, but at the same time, I'm very upbeat about uh, the the prospect for turning things around. It won't happen overnight. Uh, It's a very, very long struggle. Um, We were talking earlier, Neil, about um, people withdrawing from social media and the like. Um, I was making the analogy with someone just the other week. Could you imagine the early disciples uh, after the ascension at the time of Pentecost saying, well, it's all a bit too hard. They keep shouting me down in the synagogue and in the uh, marketplace. I think I'll better just stay here with you all in Jerusalem and (laughs) not try anymore. No one could imagine that. Um, So for us as well, we have these opportunities. I think we are called to do more and I'd really encourage people to do it. 
Well, we are tentatively taking some calls today and 1-800-316-316. There is a question I'm asking and I'm uh, I'm a little bit uncertain. I don't think it's actually appeared on Facebook. I think there's a question there about big tech. Uh, Some are responding to the conversation even with the question that is an alternative. But uh, a question that you might think through today as Christians, how do we live with the biblical mandate to honour and pray for our leaders when we disagree with their decisions. And uh, great insight there, Damien, when you can single out and name those MPs that whenever they're called on, they're there and they're standing for a faith position, uh, which most of our listeners would say is a common sense position too, uh, the wisdom of God that's applied in uh, in real life. But uh, we are taking some calls. Uh, Let's take a call from uh, one of our well-known callers, Shelby. Welcome along. Hello, Ian. Mate, love your show. Is What you bring to us is incredible. And Damien, how are you? And thank you. Damien, I'll get the name of your party again uh, that you mentioned. Um, but look, I'm with you in every way, uh, Damien and Ian, what you're saying here. Um, I'm, I do have a question because I believed at the beginning they were actually going to say that um, a parent could go to jail for 10 years something like this, or anyone would go to jail if they read the Bible, especially about where it says homosexuality. Um, now, I, I'm, I don't know whether that bit got fully through. I, I was following it. Um, I believe that evangelists, we should have more evangelists in Parliament bringing people to the Lord. Like this week, I've spoken to several people, and they all said, oh, yeah, we believe. We're the 49% of people that believe. Um, um, but um, they, I said, well, w- w- where do you fellowship? Now, I've already got a gentleman coming to my church this weekend out of the conversation I've had this week. Uh, you know, and hopefully, I'll, uh, you know, we'll get him across the line because he believes he could quote the Bible and different things, but he says, I, I, I don't fellowship. And the other lady uh, was in a uh, Woolworths. She's saying, oh, yeah, I believe. Shelby, you're making it. some great points here. And uh, look, knowing Shelby as I do, uh, having had Shelby calling in over many years, uh, here's someone who is an enthusiastic, uh, evangelistically oriented follower of Christ, not afraid to get into a conversation about anything. And uh, here's Shelby seeing a silver lining on what is a dark cloud here. Uh, I wonder if you've got any thoughts uh, for a number of the points there that Shelby might be making. Well, firstly, I I wish that we had more people with the zeal and enthusiasm that Shelby demonstrated just then. Um, Look, many things I could respond to, but I think that the key point is that one that you mentioned there, Neil, uh, that we, we can find a silver lining. Um, I've heard it said many times that God writes straight on crooked lines. Um, you know, so these these conversations that we're able to have now, perhaps these are the good things that are going to come from them, whether it's in terms of, um, you know, people wanting to uh, explore their faith for the first time, whether it's believers wanting to get more involved in public life and politics. I can only hope that good things come from this, just as they did from the marriage campaign four years ago. We saw, you know, an unprecedented involvement by people who'd never sort of thought about these issues before or got got involved. So maybe that's the the silver lining that Shelby's talking about. Uh, He did raise another point. Uh, The idea of verses in the Bible, passages from the Bible. Uh, If you were now, or supposedly when this law comes into effect uh, 12 months from now, to be standing on a street corner, and uh, some people are street evangelists, and if you were to publicly read the Bible and read passages that were controversial, I suspect you'd be traversing 
reversing the law here, breaking the law. Uh, I'm, you know, these sorts of things might need to be talked through, but uh, it's already a very concerning thing when we hear of evangelists who are approached on the street by someone who wants to be confrontational. They ask the sorts of pointed questions. There is a biblical response, and all of a sudden uh, there's an offence that has been made towards that person. Now, an offence could be a criminal offence. Thoughts here, Damien, on people and the the idea of public reading of the Bible, particularly those scripture verses in Bible uh, that that are not going to change, but do, do in fact challenge where this law is taking us. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting one, Neil, and it's one I've followed closely um, through some of my involvement in the, in the political world because some of these cases have actually come up in Australia, uh, but many more overseas. Look, I think firstly, there's a in terms of street preaching, there's obviously a question of prudence, but coming straight to the crux of your question, which is, you know, what what this means for sharing uh, scripture publicly. I think if we look beyond Australia, where there have been some cases and worthy of looking at, if we look at the UK, where there have been some extreme cases, where people have uh, had complete uh, permission to to speak publicly, you know, like a speaker's corner or the like, uh, and have respectfully and prudently shared from scripture, but basically shared some hard truths. They have fallen foul of the law, they have been arrested, they have been moved on, Sometimes uh, not even for breaking any law, they have found all sorts of strange ways to throw the book at them, you know, the public nuisance or, or so on. So these, as we were talking about earlier, are the sorts of issues which I think are going to be the tipping point. Um, perhaps the, the, you know, the hard questions that Christians, uh, particularly those involved in, in ministry, will need to ask themselves uh, about you know what they're they're willing to do and, and how they're willing to, to be counted as as we see these restrictions further come in in time. <coughs> Pardon me. Thank you so much, Shelby, uh, for your insight today. One eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen to join in our conversation. Before we take another call, uh, the idea that Big Brother is about to be reaching inside the four walls of your church. Uh, the idea that a pastor might say something in a sermon and have uh, pastor's notes uh, demanded uh, as evidence uh, by some sort of uh, human rights commission or uh, tribunal somewhere that will be investigating complaints, uh, the idea that uh, sermon notes might actually become evidence against uh, Christian leaders. Uh, any thoughts here, Damien? Uh, we've we've seen cases like that in Australia already, Neil. Um, I can point to one example that you may or may not be aware of, um, Pastor Campbell Markham, um, who was a, a, a lecturer and a, a minister in, um, in Hobart, I believe, of a Presbyterian background. And his um, sermon posts uh, posted to a blog online were looked up and complained about, I think, in one case, years after the fact. So there was a, a deliberate attempt to trawl through and lodge a complaint. Overseas, we've seen many instances of these, the US, uh, Scandinavia. So it's entirely probable, I think, that when these laws are weaponised, that people will try and uh, make the most of them. Let's take one more call. David is in Perth. Hello, David. Welcome along. Yes, good morning, all. Um, good to hear this conversation. I've got two points I'd like to hit home with you today. Um, one is the one that you're talking about um, that impinges on uh, religious freedom. Now we need to get some people to take all this to the High Court because our Constitution says we have the freedom of religion and freedom of religion is being impinged on 
uh, by these laws of the state. So we need to um, get people who uh, have a lot of money to take these people to court and have a really big high court case against our freedom of religion. The second point was with regard to technology. Um, Let's go back to some of the things I was just being through with the NBN. Um, I had a copper uh, telephone line, and if uh, you don't join, then uh, you're going to get cut off. And then, um, so I have to join, and we have the power cut off. Then you don't have any telephone. If you have a medical emergency, um, well, that's just too bad. And uh, this is the sort of thing that um, technology is impinging on. Um, but we had the uh, David. The let's just let me just cut across you here because uh, you've made a. I think the important point to pick up on, and I know you're talking about a, like an intimidation and a forced uh, a way of uh, of uh, obeying the laws. Uh, but let's come back to this idea that eventually uh, there may well be a case that becomes quite prominent here and may well go all the way to the high court, and we'll need some sort of judgment from the highest court in our land uh, do you think that uh, you know testing these things in the court it's obviously going to be ahead of us i think damien but uh, uh, the idea that david has set up there that uh, you know it will need to be discussed in the courts look that's entirely possible neil both in terms of the victorian uh, sphere so what the the law will capture and what it won't and then ultimately whether someone gets standing, because that's that's the first part, we can't just take things to the High Court, but if someone were to achieve standing, if something were to get there, then by all means it would be great to have that case heard. But a couple of points I would make, and I caution people, I'm not a lawyer, but I've been around these sorts of things long enough. Firstly, there's been a great reliance among people on quoting the Federal Constitution. For better or worse, and I would argue for worse, courts have found over the years that the right to freedom of religion in our Constitution is not absolute. So we can't just say, there it is in writing, go away and leave me alone. Um, much as we would like to, it doesn't work that way. The other point I would make is don't rely on courts as some sort of silver bullet. We certainly uh, saw in the case of Cathy Club, a uh, very brave lady who challenged Victoria's terrible um, bubble zone laws around abortion centres. She was trying to offer support to women in need uh, and found herself, you know, um, before the courts on that. That went all the way to the High Court as well uh, and it was thrown out. So we can't rely on courts overturning these laws. Uh, I think to do so would perhaps encourage people in a way to to sort of sit back and and disengage from the political process beforehand. If we want to stop these bad sort of laws from happening, we have to get involved now and at the earliest part of these processes. Well, if ever there was a prod, uh, this ought to be it. Uh, Become... Uh, informed and aware and don't be just someone who is sitting in an armchair uh, but be prayerful and be prepared to take action. Uh, I want to thank David for his call. We have run out of time for our conversation today. Uh, Let me encourage listeners uh, that even though this law has been passed in the Upper House in Victoria overnight, uh, just to repeat what I said a little earlier from the report that I understand, the law now goes to the Victorian Governor for Royal Assent. It will not come into effect for 12 months. Uh, Certainly churches will need to talk through how they approach uh, all of the issues around the new laws in Victoria. Uh, Damien, when it comes to support and uh, for organisations like yours, the Australian Family Coalition, uh, listeners will know that I'm regularly encouraging support for organisations with a firm Christian foundation and those who are 
advocating for these issues around family, faith and freedom. Uh, Let me encourage uh, listeners today uh, to check out what is at uh, the ostfamily.com.au website. That's the website of the Australian Family Coalition, ostfamily.com.au. I'm sure there'll be resources and ways that people can link and be a part of campaigns, get onto some regular mailings that keep you updated with some of the developments that are happening in these things. Damien Wild, uh, always appreciate your insights. Thank you so much for taking some time to share those with us today on 2020. My pleasure, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.